David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I'm Elliot Harris, and we have a great show today. A football player from Carlsbad, New Mexico, he went to the University of Colorado, played professionally from 1959 to 1968. John Wooten had the good fortune to block for a running back named Jim Brown with the Cleveland Browns. David and I talked with him recently. And here is our interview. Went to the University of Colorado. I came into the National Football League in my rookie year, 1959, fifth round draft pick of the Cleveland Browns. You, you well, I'm an old man. Uh, not, not that old. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Texan by birth. Grew up over in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and went to high school there. Uh, and went from there to Colorado in 1965. How, how did New Mexico and New Mexico State let you get out to Colorado? Were you heavily recruited? Yeah, uh, I probably what happened really is that uh, my mom fell in love with the freshman co- coach, football coach at Colorado. Gentleman by the name of Hugh Davidson. And my mom just took a liking to him and said over and over, uh, this Coach Davidson is an excellent man, and that's where I really want you to go to school. And I, I sort of liked uh, Bob Blackman. I don't know if you remember that name. Sure. Who, uh, he was at Denver in my sophomore and junior year, and then he got the job at Dartmouth. And he kept recruiting me. I fortunately had grades to go there. And I really liked Bob Blackman. And uh, But my mom just said, hey, that is a long way from home, from Carlsbad, New Mexico, to Dartmouth. So when she said that, I knew that she, that wasn't what she wanted. So I have absolutely no regrets. Colorado is great for me. I went there, had a great time. Uh, we won there as players and uh, great friendships. Boy Dollar, Eddie Dove, Stransky, all those guys, we're still friends today. So I, I have no holler about going to Colorado. Did you ever learn how to ski while you're out there? No, and that's all my fault. Bob Biatti, who was our freshman football coach, and he was also the Colorado ski coach who went on to be Olympic, Olympic ski coach. He used to beg me, Boots, just, you know, I can teach you this. I can I can make you a heck of a, not, not talking about a competitive skier, <laughs> but I can just, and I told him, I said, Coach, I am afraid, you know, I, I, I 
thought I was going to have a chance to play pro football, and I go up there and tear up a knee, and I'll never be able to play. I just don't want to take that chance. So that's why I'm not a good skier. I'm not even a skier. I, I, I turned it down because I was afraid. Okay? Seems perfectly logical to me. What was growing up in New Mexico like? I, I don't envision there being a, a large African-American population. I don't imagine there's a large population overall in New Mexico. But, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're absolutely right on all cases. Uh, but, but we had a great time. Uh, let me just take a second to tell you how the Lord has blessed me, okay? As you well familiar with the Brown vs. Board of Education. Yes. Yes taught us all that integrated the schools across the country. That ruling would mean that you're going to start in the first grade, second grade, and so forth, which would have meant to me, in my own individual case there in Carlsbad, that I would have been out of high school before you were integrated at the high school level. Okay? Mm-hmm. Fortunate for us, the head coach, Ralph Boyer, Guy Wade, the principal, Tom Hanson, the superintendent of Carlsbad Schools, got together for whatever reason and went to the students at Carlsbad High School and called an assembly and said, we want you to tell us whether you want to call it students to come here to this high school right now, not wait for the regular first grade, second grade, third grade. We want to do it now. And the students voted overwhelmingly, stood up and voted in assembly that start colors coming here this fall. Otherwise, I never would have played organized football. I didn't play organized football until I was in the 10th grade because that's freshman did not go to high school there in Carlsbad. They didn't make you feel good that they really wanted you to play and the other guys uh, to go to school and get the education. Well, the whole thing is that what it showed was how students, even in that era of time, saw the fact that, hey, give everybody an opportunity to go to school here. We only had one school in Carlsbad. Uh, The kids all around, Loving and Otis and all those little communities, they all bust into Carlsbad High School, and they voted, and that, that... as I said, that's where I'm blessed. Because if that hadn't happened, I never would have had the opportunity to play organized football. And, you know, I probably would have graduated out of Carver High School and end up somewhere working in the mines, uh, potash mines out there in Carlsbad or digging a ditch or whatever. That's because... We were a very poor family. We had, I'm from a family of six with a single mother. Saw the movie Help. You saw my mom. This is what 
came from. This is what we saw as youngsters. That is why I say football has given me every single thing that I ever wanted. I was able to get an education. I was able to go play pro football. I was able to go in my pro football career. My mama home there in Carlsbad, pay off all her bills. All of this is a result of playing this great game that we all love as kids. But it's given me this. And this is why you see me fight for others to have the same opportunity. I never wanted to coach. Texas Ram here at the Cowboys, which brought me back to Texas to work for the Cowboys, to learn the business, and to be able to go and help others who I know have the same ability or more than I had. But that's why you hear us fighting the way we go after it. We're fortunate that we have played in this league. We try to do it the right way. And the fifth part of the Alliance recognizes it. All of us, not lawyers, administrative people, directors, all of us who work for this organization, not one single one of us is on salary or anything else. It's all give back. That's the way we roll. Okay? No, okay. it makes perfect sense. Did you ever say to yourself, why didn't Brown versus, a, a case like Brown versus Board of Education happen before 1954? We, we've lived long enough to know why. You know, I mean, you know, the president said it the other day, the other night, there, the past Tuesday night in his speech. You know, those of us who have lived, that's why the movie Selma is so important movie. All of our youngsters, black and white, Hispanic, Jews, you know, whatever, they should see this movie so that all of them start to understand where our countries come from and where we're trying to go and why we must eliminate the economic discrimination level, the racial, you know, and it starts with the very, very simplest of things of respect. That's all it is. Respect. Respect everybody. You don't have to like me. You don't have to like him. You don't have to like respect is the key word. Because if you respect everybody, you're never going to have a problem with them, no matter who they are or what they're about. No, I've you're seen absolutely. it. I've come through all of the fights that we have and so forth. You know, I, I sit with Dr. King back in the 60s when Carl Stokes was running for mayor of Cleveland. And I said to Dr. King, the reason why we as professional athletes cannot march with you or cannot walk the streets with you 
Because if people hit us or pour syrup on us or spit in our face, we're going to fight. And that will set back the cause. Well, we can help you. It's on the economic, let's build an economic base. Let's build an educational base. Where our young people are understanding how important it is to have an education. You know, that, that is what this whole thing is about and, and moving, you know, in that direction. No, you're absolutely right. I remember Ellie and I talked to uh, Wally Triplett, and he had a scholarship offer to a major college, and once they found out he was African-American, they pulled it. No question. So I was down at the Senior Bowl early last week, and we were talking, and I remember in 1958, uh, I got a letter from the Senior Bowl committee inviting me to play in the Senior Bowl. And when I filled out the application and everything to play and send it back, I get the letter saying, we're sorry we made a mistake. You know, they went on the name Wooten, All-American. They hadn't seen the pictures, right? <laughs> uh, you know, they just went on, uh, you know, at University of Colorado. I'm sure they never thought this might be a black guy, you know. But anyway, we, we laugh at those things now. Because we've overcome that, you know. Now you see uh, black youngsters playing in, in all over the state of everywhere, Alabama and everywhere else. It, there's nothing more gratifying than to sit and look. I was looking at Alabama playing Mississippi on a game, and at one point in time during the game, every single player on Alabama and on Mississippi was a black guy, uh, just doing the game, you know. And you smile to yourself because you remember it wasn't that long ago that that simply was not going to happen. So we recognize that we made great strides. You know, that people talk about the Rooney Rule and when are we going to stop, you know, enacting it or pushing the Rooney Rule. When the day comes when you know that a person is given the opportunity simply because of his ability and that he's not held back because of the color of his skin. That's when we will say we don't need to do any rule. It may not happen in my lifetime. I hope it does. You know, I would hope one day that I can say we don't need to do any rule. Well, you look at a sport like basketball, and in, in the NBA, a black coach is not a big deal. You know, they've had plenty of them. But in the NFL, it, it seems more challenging for an African-American to become a head coach. Well, <clears throat> you, know, you know, you see it, right? throughout this country, throughout our government and everywhere else, in corporate America and everywhere else, there's still that element of people that simply have trouble with the black being in charge or the head of the organization or the head of the corporation. You know, they simply have problems with that. And that's what we're still fighting. You know, for that. You see a country where 
some people have a problem with the president of the United States, you know, being an African-American. No question. When you should look at the fact that our government has always been executive, legislative, judicial. It's been our country forever and ever. That the we, head of states of countries, everything comes through the executive office. Now, all of a sudden, we got the uh, Speaker of the House inviting the, the Premier of, of uh, Israel to come and speak. <laughs> what is that about? What is that about? Huh? It's all about politics, and it's about undermining negotiations with Iran and things like that. And some would say that borders on treason, and which side of the border, I suppose, depends on how you look at it. But uh, Well, you know, I've been in this, I've lived in this country since 1936, grew up, so forth. Never have I seen the president, the office of president, disrespected the way I've seen under President Obama. I've never seen it. And we've had some of the worst presidents ever during our lifetime. Totally, totally inept. I've never seen them as disrespected. Yeah. Well, the way they some of those, and I don't mean them all, in in this in the legislation and so forth, part of the department, have disrespected this president. And it's all because he's a black man. No well, other reason. Yeah. Something, says history, something says history will treat Barack Obama much more kindly than uh, some of the some of the folks out there. Of course, it has to. It has to. When you realize that this man making a move to save the motor industry in this country, save this country. You know, my dad told me many years ago that the automobile industry is the very backbone of this country. And you know it, and I know it, that it is. Because it spins off so many other jobs and industry and so forth, including uh, buying gas and, you know, thank goodness now you can fill your car up without uh, having to go into debt, right? Right. <laughs> that is a joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, these are the kind of things that are said. You know, I think this is a great country. I love this country. And that's why I will do everything I can to make it live up to its creed that all men are created equal. That is where we're going to always stand. Always. Was Paul, when you got drafted by the Browns, were you worried at all about playing for Paul Brown that, you know what, there might be some problems being a black player playing on the Browns? Not at all. Let's go back to 1946. Again, blessed to go to the Cleveland Browns. Go back to 1946. 
Was that Mary Mott? Mary? Mary may not know. From 1933 to 1946, African-Americans were not allowed to play in the National Football League. Simply because of George Hallis, Professor Marshall, and that group simply said, we don't want, quote, the colors taking the jobs. So, no blacks. So now here's Paul Brown, the All-American Conference. They won it over and over and over. And they they want to bring the uh, the Cleveland Yanks or whatever they were called. They weren't the, the Browns. They were coming out of New York. And Paul Brown says very, very, very emphatically, I'm going to come and I'm going to play the guys who I feel can help me win. If you don't accept them, then I'm not coming. And that's when he came with Motley and Horst Gillum and Bill Willis and those guys. And ironically, the first game they put the team, now the Cleveland Browns, against the champions, Philadelphia Eagles. And Paul Brown put a whipping on him, checked the score in 1946. Checked oh, the score. You're right. So this is what we're talking about. So I can remember Paul Brown saying this over and over. I don't have any black Browns. I don't have any white Browns. All I have are Cleveland Browns. And even when we came there in 59, this was still his speech on opening day at training camp. If there's anyone that has trouble with this, with the problem of being a black brown or a Cleveland brown or whatever, then you let us know and we'll have you on your way. That's the way he dealt with it. That's the way he dealt with it. So consequently, I grew up under that atmosphere. I've had it at Colorado. I've had it with the Cleveland Browns. All I had to do was go out there and play to the best of my ability, and I'd be fine. And that's what we did. And I'm fortunate. I'm proud of it. Proud of it to to be one of the legends of the Cleveland Browns. Proud that we were able to win a championship in there in '64. In the next game there against Lombardi's group in '65. Proud of what we did there. And that's why Cleveland is so important to me because I love everything that I was taught. It was meaningful to me. Now there was equality on the Browns as a team. Was it that way in in real life in Cleveland? No, no. In real life in Cleveland, the majority of blacks lived on the east side. We fought for what they had was de facto segregation in the school system where you couldn't move into certain areas, into Shaker, into Wardsville, into Cleveland Heights. We fought those fights. And as I said, when Dr. King came there for his marches to fight de facto segregation and all that, as I told him, I, I can't, we can't march with you because if they spit on us, we're going to fight. I, I'm not going to let another person spit on me or 
full circle me or whatever. I said, that's not my nature. But do I believe in what he was doing? Yes. Support him to the hilt. And as you know, when he came with uh, the PUSH program, we were right in the thick of it with him, you know, uh, under Jesse, you know, running that. So economic development in the community, yes, we're going to be a big part of that. But we could not march, could not sit in in the streets of Cleveland or anywhere else. So he understood that and accepted that. And we're forever grateful to him because of it. You and Jim Brown and Bobby Mitchell, you did a lot for racial equality in the NFL and in society. I mean, Bobby Mitchell gets traded to the Redskins, and he's the first African-American player on that team. They had to be really difficult on him, especially with that owner. And, and, And they, you know, the trade that was made between Cleveland and Washington to send Bobby Mitchell there and to give us Bernie Davis the first African-American Heisman Trophy winner, number one draft pick, and so forth. Unfortunate, as I say all the time, Ernie was just too good of a person for this place. And the good Lord took it away from us before you ever played it down or anything. But the point is, the right man went to Washington, Bobby Mitchell. Not too many people could have done what Bobby Mitchell did in Washington. He, as you know, he's out of Arkansas, played at the University of Illinois, but was an outstanding person. His football experts speak for themselves, all pro, Hall of Famer and everything. But his ability to handle what was going on, D.C. was the most segregated place in the world. There was only one hotel that we could stay in when we'd come in to play the Redskins. And that was the DuPont Plaza, located there in DuPont Circle there. And I don't even know if it exists today or not. That was the only hotel. And the fortunate thing, we put a whipping on them every year. Check the record. The only time they beat us was Bobby Mitchell coming back to Cleveland <laughs> and beating us in 1962, coming back in there and catching a little uh, square and pass and running it down, running it across the field and down the sideline to beat us. You know, I won't tell you what Paul Brown said about that. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I mean, we laughed about it now. It wasn't funny then. But we yeah, sure, I'm sure. Okay. Now, when you came into the NFL, you and Gene Hickerson were sort of the rotating guards, and you would bring in the plays? Right, exactly. Did did you enjoy that role, or did you say, hey, I want to be out there all the time? No, uh, we we, we understood his system. And and, and again, I, I am forever grateful because it gave me an advantage to learn the game. Because we call, we didn't just call the play. We called the snap count. We called the checkoff. You know, we we called everything. So consequently, actually, when we come in the huddle, the quarterback only repeated what I had already said, you know. Because, number one, we gave him the whole thing, including the checkoff and everything else. 
But what it did was it taught me football. Because Paul called the plays at practice. See? So we had to know what the quarterbacks knew and where they were looking at the, the pass patterns and, and everything else to see it intelligently to, to the quarterback. All of this helped me to become a better football guy. Help me to learn the game better and so forth. All right, that's the first part of our interview with John Wooten. After this brief break, we will be back with part two. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Mm-hmm. 